Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Goddess Teens Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the second Sunday after Trinity. It comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, and I'll read that in the English Standard Version. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right, uh, context. Well, this happens on the Sabbath, and he's in the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. So, Mm -hmm. and they get into the whole healing on the Sabbath, and then, and then it's, I, I really like the inclusion of verse 15, by the way, which is the way LSB has it. The, um, Lutheran Missile Project cuts that off, and, uh, there's no, I don't, I, there's no good reason in my mind. I don't, I don't care what's historic here. I mean, come on. It's one verse. Mm-hmm. It gives the context for the parable. The parable is a direct response to this statement. Mm-hmm. It should be added. So there you go. I'm, t- I'm sick okay. of being bossed around by Evan Scammon. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been submitting and I'm, I, I, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I'm going back to my old expansions. <laughs> This no, aggression but, but really, will not stand, man. That's right. Well, anyway, this this one though, come on. I mean, this parable, it's a response to that sentence. And 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 it does matter, I think, because uh it does give it does give a nuance to the parable that the parable is speaking about the present reality. So because the problem with the guy's statement is, right, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a true statement. The problem is they don't recognize that he is the bread of God, right? Mm-hmm. That he is there in their presence and they don't recognize Or that the him. kingdom of God so, is among them. Yeah, right. Yeah, all that. Yeah. So, so I mean, the parable is like, look, you guys, you know, you're, you're talking a pious game, but you need to respond to the, it sounds like, I mean, this is an evangelism text and this is a good text for the evangelicals, right? And the Arminians, mm-hmm. because- you, you know, you need to respond to the invitation. Um, uh, and we can kind of get around it a little bit by saying you need to not reject the invitation, but. Yeah, but I mean, so anyway, at the we same don't have to time, 
at the same time, you get the end, compel them to come in. I know. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah. So there, there, there is a, a choosing of God before there is ever a response. Well, there's also a little bit of, you know, the Calvinists probably like this last sentence too. This is, this could give weight to double predestination. Uh, none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. That yeah, but they were still right. invited. They were invited. Yeah. And the invitation was sincere. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I, no, I don't, I don't, obviously I don't believe in double predestination, but uh well, this, the, you know, this, this, <laughs> this text doesn't stand alone in the Bible. You know, I mean, it, it's in the context, but, but it is an evangelism text for sure. And it is a text that does call for a response to the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a text that threatens the wrath of God for rejecting the gospel. Yeah. So, 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 so this, this whole, so this parable is in response to that statement after Jesus tells them to invite into their homes for banquets and meals, not those who can repay them, but those who can't repay them. And he, this particular person responds like, oh yes, we'll all be blessed uh, in the future (laughs) in the kingdom of God. Like we don't have to do that. Um, Yeah. So is this not just evangelism, but this really seems to say you need to be opening up your homes practicing hospitality all the time. Well, and I mean, it's a super close tie because in verse 13, he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, which, mm-hmm. which gets repeated in verse 21 in the parable, go out quickly into the streets, right? Bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, the very people that they were supposed to invite. So, so yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, the the statement "Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God" is a deflection. Yeah. So and, do and we, he corrects it. Yeah. Do we have a similar deflection? Uh, in other words, do we tend to concentrate on the future so much uh, about how things will be made right or what it'll be like that we ignore the here and now? Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a you know we we can take comfort in the doctrine of an election in a way that actually undermines the command to evangelize the world or to mm-hmm. engage in acts of mercy. If was that what you were, was that what you were getting at with the hospitality a little bit? Yeah. Idea. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, right. That's fair. Um, that it's not just evangelism. It's all actually providing food for those who are hungry and so forth. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think we can deflect that way. Um, or, you know, it, it, w- whether it's the doctrine of election or in some other way, spiritualizing everything, mm-hmm. right? This is all about theology, which, you know, never hits the real world, right? These are just things we like to think about. We don't want to actually engage in. We talk about love yeah. your neighbor, but then, you know, what does that look like? You know, is it just an abstract idea that lives in my head as an, you know, fantasy, but doesn't actually invite, involve hospitality, feeding, sacrifice, Mm-hmm. talking to people. Yes. Um, and it, it also seems like this is vocationally bound, like not just you're going to set up some sort of program where you're going <laughs> to set up a table and feed the hungry, but vocationally bound in, in the sense of you're going to invite them to your place and open up your home 
Yeah, so maybe we should just read that in verses 12, the, the, the two verses before, right? So then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. So I think you're right. I mean, first of all, there is this expectation that you are going to be having dinners and suppers and inviting people, that mm-hmm. you are going to live in a community of hospitality and of yeah. sharing things and your home. And then, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And right. So then the statement, blessed is he who shall, I mean, maybe I'm being too hard on the guy. I mean, maybe he's saying, well, we'll be repaid in the resurrection of the just. That's going to be great. But it does seem that the parable is at least somewhat of a corrective to say, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, uh, but still, you know, there's there's a duty now to respond appropriately. So, and yeah, though the, so, the parable though is not so. I mean, that is contextual, but I mean, the parable itself is not uh, is not so much about that. I mean, I do think the parable is much more about the eternal things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just wondering if those if, if by tying these things, he's he's tying the eternal things to very present realities. Well, maybe, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to untie them, but I mean, let's look at the parable itself. Right. So, I mean, obviously it's an allegory. So a a guy gives a great supper, sends his servant to tell everybody come for all things are now ready. Right. It is a command, uh, (laughs) you know, and when it's refused, even though it's certainly this is gospel, right? Even though it's Mm -hmm. a command, come and get it is not, it it only turns into an accusation if it's refused, right? And so the gospel can be, I think this is an interesting law gospel dynamic that's not often discussed in my hearing. And that is that the gospel can be perverted into the law. So it is possible, right? If I say Jesus loves you, technically that's good news. That's the gospel. Mm -hmm. But if you say, oh no, he doesn't, now the statement, Jesus loves you, stands as a judgment against you because you rejected yeah. it. Yeah. You cannot, it doesn't work the other way. You cannot pervert the law into the gospel. So you can, there's no way to say you shall not commit adultery and make that the forgiveness of sins, right? Mm. Or the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Not, not that, it, I mean, it's just the, it's just the, it's just the dynamic uh, and the reality that of what in some sense is within the capacity or the authority of humanity. We can kill, but we can't make alive. So I always tell the kids, you can kill a frog, you can't make a frog, right? Mm. And uh, I've killed a lot of frogs in my day. But anyway, that's a story for another time. (laughs) In cruel ways that were sinful. But anyway, you can kill a frog. I can do, you can do, you can, a boy can be abusive to frogs. uh, And Mm -hmm. that's wrong and he shouldn't do it. And um, if his mother finds out, he should get in trouble. But anyway, you, but you, you know, so we have the power to destroy things, which is, of course, why we can kill a baby, but we can't make a baby. And then mm. we don't recognize that actually the making of a baby is a miracle and a gift from God that we should be in awe of, right, and have reverence toward. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so when they reject it, it... it they turn it into law, it stands against them. And I love this in verse 21, that he becomes angry, right? Mm. He's not just disappointed. Yeah. 
that's sig- that's significant because if I invite you to you know come to my house for dinner and you tell me you you tell me you make an excuse, I'm not angry typically. I might be sad, right? I might be suspicious that you don't really like me, but but mm-hmm. anger isn't the emotion. But it's different when God invites you to His house. You you do not have the freedom to say no. Right. So the other thing, what's that? Uh, right. I mean, this is the way it is in in families. You know, if I invite yes. my kids to do something and they say no, um, look, look, <laughs> I, I said it in a nice way. I was appealing to your better nature. Uh, but now that you've said no, now you're, in a sense, you're going to get it. Yeah. I always tell the children, it's if you're if you're walking through the living room and your dad's reading the newspaper. Of course, none of their dads read newspapers, but you know, for, indulge me, right? So the dad's reading the newspaper, and the kid walks across the living room, and the dad says, "Hey, sport, what's up?" And the kid is silent and just keeps walking, right? Yeah. What's going to happen? Uh, you know, well, maybe he'll say it again, right? And if you continue to ignore him, then what's going to happen? You're going to get swatted, right? Yeah. You you cannot right. Your father's when your father speaks to you, it it demands a response. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot ignore him, right. right? And so yeah. So anyway, so he becomes angry, righteously and justifiably angry because of their sin. Their right. excuses are also patently stupid. Um, yeah. Before we get into the excuses, okay. The the image here is they've been invited previously. And now they're being yes. told after the invitation that everything's ready. So now you're able to, now you can come and enjoy. So it's not as right. though this was an unexpected <laughs> possibility. They had received the invitation, probably already said, yeah, I'll be there. Um, and then when it actually comes time, they one by one make excuses of why not to go. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They, they were... Well, I think so, you know, to go back to verse 12, I think these, in fact, are his friends, brothers, and relatives, mm. right? And I, because these are the Jews, mm-hmm. and these are the people that, yeah, they're part of this, and they have been, in, they have been invited. So Jesus himself is, I mean, th- there's got to be a tie to that verse 13. So right? in other words, this is one of those, um, uh I think they call it a partial negation or something like that. Kind of like you get in Joel where it says, do not rend your garments, uh, but rend your hearts. Uh, he, he's not saying you shouldn't rend your garments. He wants you also to rend your garments along with your hearts. So when he's saying, uh, when you have a banquet, do not just invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and rich neighbors but also invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with that term, but that makes total sense. That might be the wrong term, but it's something well, about- Well, I don't know a, the right part- term. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I, I think you're right. Whatever the term is, I don't know, but I think that's absolutely right. This is not saying- that, Either or, you know, it's both and here. Right. And, well, and the problem is, is that you're doing right, because you're doing- you're doing one to the exclusion of the other and pretending that it's sufficient, right? Mm. You're rendering your you're rendering your garments without rendering your hearts and pretending like you've satisfied the law. You've invited your friends, brothers, and relatives and pretending that this is generosity mm-hmm. or charity. And I mean, and it's not that it's not at all, but it's not, it's just an outward thing in a sense, right? Even the right, even yeah. the 
uh, even the pagans love their relatives. Mm-hmm. I'm always surprised at, at I mean, if, yeah, it just always kind of, I'm always taken aback when I have, you know, Christians boast to me about their, about their families because of how much they love each other. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty regular thing where people will say to me, oh, you know, our family, they really love each other. I re- we really love. I really love my family, and I'm like, well, you know, good. I mean, <laughs> I, but I, I mean, it's like this is like you know that. that but they, it's often said with pride, and as though it's as though they're telling me something special, you know, mm-hmm. something unique about them. And I'm like, well, you know, so do the so do the pagans. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't love your family. I'm just not impressed. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> right. Uh, Sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the the impressive thing is to love uh, love those you don't get anything from, to love the unlovable mm-hmm. and uh, those who can't repay you. I, I do think those people, it is unexpected, right? In verse 20, I mean, when they go out, the servants go out, it's done as, he, as it commanded, right? The poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, they're not expecting the invitation, Mm-hmm. But they also don't have anything better to do, and they don't have right. This is, I mean, that's the problem with the excuses. First of all, they're fake; they're they're total nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody buys a piece of ground without first going and seeing it. Mm-hmm. So this guy's lying, right? It's not a legit excuse. No one buys yoke of oxen without testing them first. No one marries a wife. I mean, then the last one doesn't even say why. He's just like, I married a wife, so I can't come. I think what? I think that's kind of humorous, right? It's kind of like yeah, you they have to go see the they have to go see the field, test the the yoke of oxen um or examine them. And so he's Jesus leaves it off, but it's I've married a wife, I must go examine her. I must Yeah, right, right. Test it out, you know. So I think there's a little right. bit of humor well, there. I do what right, but all of it's sort of like I've got I've got actually important things to do, mm-hmm. right? I've got something that matters. Like you know, I'm not I'm not engaged in this frivolity of your of your feast. You know, I've got these things are real. Fields are real. Ox are real. Wives are real. Mm-hmm. And I don't need your food. I'm not hungry. I'm perfectly sufficient. I don't need your protection. I don't need your friendship. I don't need right. Yeah. I'm taking like, I I have things. See that that's the I already have things. I have a field, I have oxen. I, what what do I need you for? Yeah. What do I need God for? So just so to, it's to, to back up a little bit. Is this um we've already mentioned this is an an allegory. Um but it, are were these common excuses for uh for men of this day to say to their friends, their brothers, their relatives and rich neighbors? Or is this highlighting that they wouldn't even say this to to their friends, relatives, and rich neighbors, but they are saying it to God? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Okay, I, I think it's I think it's a it's highlighting the idolatry, right? Mm-hmm. And it's um, yeah, I I don't think you would say this to your to your actual to an actual human. Yeah, well, I mean, I just was thinking, but it just in terms of uh, of human interaction maybe he was highlighting how look guys you you keep you keep trying to one up one another and you have these people saying that they're not going to come because of this or they're not going to come because of that you think you've 
done these great things, but they're slighting you. Mm. Why wouldn't you reach out to those who don't slight you and be thankful? I don't like it. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose, because I don't think that they're supposed to be in the place of the one giving the supper. I mean, they are the people invited. Yeah, I they mean, are. Yes. But, yeah, but if if they've been in this position, yeah, they, they might recognize, recognize it as, oh, yeah, this is what actually people do. I suppose. <clears throat> I mean, but usually, and I mean, I, you know, it, it is true. We have, we have, ex- I mean, we've both done it and we've experienced it, right? Mm-hmm. Where where an excuse is just sort of a, it's just an excuse. I, the truth is I don't want to go, right? I always, right. Use, I always tell the story, my poor wife, I always tell all our stories, but the, uh, the story of her, you know, she doesn't want to go to the ladies' aid, right? And uh, so I have to go because I'm the professional, right? So I mm-hmm. go to the ladies' aid and then they want to know where she is. And then I just lie for her and say, oh, she wasn't feeling well. And... Um, you know, I, I do that, and I'm happy to do that. I'm, I don't think it's wrong. I think, In fact, I think it'd be wrong for me to tell them the truth, though they're on to me now because I've told this story a bunch of times. But uh, the, uh, the, the point would be is that the, the lie softens the blow. And sometimes, you know, we, an excuse is actually a bit of kind of, you know, social lubrication and political niceness to spare feelings. Yeah. Um, and, but, uh, so, I mean, in a sense, you know, they're sort of making excuses, but there is that when you are on the receiving end, why didn't, you know, I want her to come to ladies aid because I want her to like my events and be part of this and support it. And the fact that she doesn't want to be stings. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you're right in that sense that we can sympathize with the man who gives the feast and recognize that excuses aren't satisfying. Yeah, uh, most ex- sometimes, but but I think there are some excuses that you would be, you know, uh, my husband had a heart attack and I'm driving him to the hospital, mm-hmm. right? You, you, I mean, there are some excuses that are legit, and there are others that are just, oh, when somebody just says, you know, yeah, whatever, I have a headache, I can't come. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, the kind of excuses we make that we sort of know. If you really wanted to come, you'd come. Right. No, definitely. So these are obviously these are extreme. <laughs> yeah, I mean these are these are more extreme, and, and of course the stakes are higher too, right? Usually, if we're going to say I have a headache and I can't come, uh, you know, but 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 let's do it. Let's plan it right. The the implication is I'll come next time, or mm-hmm. you know we're still saying I want to come, and yeah, the stakes aren't as high. This mm-hmm. is, and we haven't already accepted the invitation either. Like you said, this is they've already. Pre-accepted, and then not shown up, and there is something of that going on too, because there is this sense that somebody, the food's been prepared, the places are set, somebody has to eat this. It is not going to be wasted. Yeah, um, which that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, theologically, Paul gets into that a little bit in Romans, that there there is this benefit, you know, uh, to the Jews losing their faith and rejecting the Messiah that does make room for the Gentiles. Mm. And, you know, we're grafted on, not that we can't be cut off also, he says. Right. And of course they can be grafted back on too. It's, it's not, but you know, there is this, there is this dynamic that exists um, in the new Testament still today. I think, you know, between the Jews who had this by birthright 
and you know the hope that they'll be provoked to jealousy and come back. Um, and yet we have benefited. We are the beneficiaries in a sense of their failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because somebody's, look, this is not going to waste, right? The house will be filled. His house will be filled. So there's an urgency there. Yeah. Well, you brought up the compel, I mean, mm-hmm. or force, or however we translate that. That's that's something too. Okay. Right? So why, to, why go to the, why first to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame? And then why then the highways and hedges and just compel people? generally. Is there anything to the steps? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think that the poor, the maimed, the lamed, and the blind are the innocent victims, more or less, the desperate people, right? Mm -hmm. But, 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 you know, people that are suffering through this life. And I think on the highways and hedges, we're talking about the criminals. Mm. So, um, or people that are otherwise able-bodied, but not in the, you know, not part of the, they're not part of the friends, brothers, or relatives uh, for some reason, right? They're outsiders, but they're able-bodied. So maybe they're bandits, or maybe they're just crass unbelievers, you know, mm-hmm. apostate or, or, or whatever. But yeah, Trevelers I think- Travelers from outside. Yeah, whatever. They're, they're but they're, uh, uh, so the first, the first invitation is to the, the Jews, the second invitation is to the needy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an act of mercy and compassion in response to a real need. And then the and then the final circle is, you know, Gentiles and I, sinners. I, I, the criminals. Yeah. Huh? Uh, Gentiles and sinners. Gentiles. Yeah. 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 The poor, the maimed, the lamed, and the blind. And maybe that's maybe those maybe those are still Jews. Yeah. So there's two classes of Jews, and then just you're a Gentile. I mean, you mm-hmm. could be a blind Gentile, but th- it doesn't get broken down. Yeah. But I do think there are categories of people that, you know, even outside of Jews and Gentiles, even in today, we can see this as, you know, kind of the family of God, you know, that, and then those who are baptized, those who are on the rolls, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sort of the people that have needs that we could actually meet, you know, you know, we're not, we're not trying to evangelize Bill Gates, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to evangelize people that, I mean, I think kind of reasonably, not just because Bill Gates doesn't live in our neighborhood, but also because Bill Gates just isn't sort of reachable. Mm-hmm. Not that we wouldn't evangelize him, but right. He's not our, he's not our first and obvious target. Okay. So, in verse 24, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. Uh, th- there's, there's something to lose by refusing the invitation. It, it is what, what, what's operating behind this? Is there an assumption by the people that Jesus is talking to that, that kind of like in Jeremiah and Isaiah, when they're treating the house of the Lord as a den of robbers, that it's always going to be there um, since God has made his house in our city. Uh, we can kind of do what we want. We'll always has, have access to it. And so they don't really see it as there's, they always see it as there's always another opportunity instead of yeah. uh, this might be the last. Yeah. 
they, they mistake God's patience for indulgence. Mm, yeah. And and right. So I think you're right. I think also so they don't treat it as something valuable, something to be zealous and jealous over, something to protect right. and defend. Well, they they think it's theirs by right. Mm, they yeah. can't imagine a scenario where they're not in the inner circle. Mm. Right. They they're not actually capable of thinking of themselves as they couldn't go to hell. How would they go to hell? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's also this shift in verse 24 that, right, he, he does he does shift to the first person. Um, mm. I mean, you have in verse 23, it's the master speaking, right? It's a character in the parable. Yeah. But then in verse 24, Jesus is speaking, right? I say, t- I, that's how I would take it. I would put the end of the quote at at, at 23, and then Jesus says to you, says to them, I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. And his supper is, right, the uh, going to be at the resurrection of the just. Uh, that is, those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. None of those who, who reject the invitation will do that. I think he's identifying, right, it doesn't have to be read that way, but that's how I would Yeah, take I would it. not read it that way. Yeah. I think he shifts and now he explains the parable. It's a warning, right? Well, it's a re- warning either way. Well, that's true. But I think he's identifying that his the the this is Jesus is the Jesus is the master of the feast. And he's talking about he's talking about the invitation that's being given right then and there, right, in this Pharisee's house. Okay. They're so being what, invited. So what is the invitation? Where does he give that? Well, I mean, I think just his his presence in general and the healing that he's doing and right and his preaching. And he's sitting there with them and they're eating, but they're not actually in fellowship. And you know, they're so so he's actually saying there's more at stake here. You think this is a game, you can take this or leave it. You think you have a field, you think you have a wife, you think you have oxen, you don't need this, you think you can come, come and right. I mean, just all of that, taking it for granted. And I'm saying to you, the stakes are higher and don't just assume that you're going to be one of those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. If you're not eating the bread in the kingdom of God now, right? Mm. The kingdom of God is among you Mm -hmm. and uh, I am the bread of life and this isn't a game and you don't get to pick and choose. There's a danger here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, I don't. I don't know if I'd do that, but I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I just you just don't know, don't know if, if the quote goes there. I mean, you, it could be that it could be in the mouth of the master, mm-hmm. but I mean, so but see, I think. Listen, the, so he says to the servant, "Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled." And then and then he tells the servant right in that same sentence because I'm. I guess he could. Why would he tell the servant? Listen, none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Look, the, that's not any of the servants' business, in a sense. Mm. The, the servants told the first time, just go out quickly into the street. He's just told what to do. And then he comes back. I did it. There's still room. Okay, go out again and do it again. And then I, I, I think that's all he says to the servant. And then I think Jesus, I, I mean, it doesn't have to be read that way, but I think it makes more sense. I, but so it, makes se- it makes sense to me that it's part of it because now he's compelling them. He's forcefully bringing them in. Why? Because none of those who I initially invited. Oh, don't leave room. My, don't leave room. I see. Don't think that you have to save a seat for yeah, Bill no, Gates. No. Yeah. Or who no room. <laughs> Poor Bill Gates. 
Yeah, there's no room. Fill fill them up so that so that nobody would th- if they show so up at the last minute. He's giving the rationale why why okay, the servant must be hell. I mean, that could sort of goes along a little. That that would fit with the um, with the you know the ten virgins. Yeah, yeah. Well, that too. I, well, the guard conjunction could work either way. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, Jesus could be saying, uh, you know, this is the reason I'm telling you this. Uh, but but yeah, I, I could see it as a okay. Don't leave any don't leave any chairs thinking that somebody, you know, we're gonna in case somebody else shows up. Right. So if you th- like, if you think that this isn't something to be jealous for, think yeah. again. And the servant might be thinking that you know we need to have room in case a dignitary comes or something. Yeah, we're not doing that. No, fill every seat. Huh? Yeah, we're not doing that. Fill every seat. No, fill every seat. No room. Make sure, make sure if they do show up, the doors are barred. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That 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 works. All right. I so go, I don't know. So what I'm do you not, what, not do you, what do you focus on here in when in preaching this? Do you focus on the uh, the kingdom of God as something to be jealous for? Um, kind of what, what we've talking about talked about already talking what we've already talked about. <laughs> I suppose I I don't know I think I'm gonna you know I I don't talk probably enough about evangelism I mean mm-hmm. you know I people do need to be exhorted to invite their neighbors to warn okay. people all right to, so if um, you're gonna talk about evangelism just in general are you going to give them some perhaps tips on how to do this if they're wondering like are you going to give them well, some scenarios okay. Do you have some tips you want no, to give to me? No, I don't. I just was. I think we will. I think sometimes we talk about. Oh, it's it's important to invite people to church, yeah. and but I don't. I, and this is where like our evangelical and reformed brothers are. I think better at us. Yeah. Uh, at this than us. That not only will they then exhort, but they'll say, "Okay, so here's some examples of how this might happen." It's not, you know, he, here's how to listen well and may perhaps turn the conversation or whatever the case is, are you, are you going out and inviting them? And yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, I mean, that's a good idea to get into. So maybe we need to say, look, uh, you know, uh, open up spiritual conversations with your neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Be, be open to actually talking to them and confessing about what you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe take advantage, uh, you know, be, be looking for opportunities yes. to actually, right? Whether it's you know, could you know, the, the sorrow over the injustices in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. So if the, if you're standing over the fence, you know, yeah. talking about how bad the traffic is, you know, you could say, yeah, the traffic is bad, and that's because people are bad. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, you know why people are bad because of sin. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you could. And you know what the solution for sin is? I mean, there are, yeah. maybe we need to, yeah, so you could talk about that, obviously. I mean, I remember Plus talking about- uh, It's a good I idea. Rem- I can't remember where in his class, uh, one of the classes that I had with him, I remember him saying in one of these practical classes, keep your air, your ears, and he, I think he was thinking primarily of when you're dealing with your own members of your own congregation- Keep your ears uh, tuned for confessions of sin. Hmm. So maybe you could have the same kind of attitude that you're listening for confessions or self-justifications 
as an entry point for discussing yeah. what you believe about sin and real justification and real righteousness. Right. Well, and, you know, recognizing that they're right. So listen for pain, yeah. I would say, right? Where is their pain? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm frustrated by this traffic. Well, well, you know, why are you frustrated by this traffic? What, what would be, how would you like it to go? You'd get, mm-hmm. you know, it'd take less time to drive to work. Okay. What would you do with that time? Right. Mm-hmm. Or why do you think it should be that way? I mean, yeah. I think there, I think, yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. Listen for, you could also do the same thing with evangelism, right? I mean, if they are confessing, if they are expressing guilt and, you know, um, dissatisfaction with what they've done, you know, that's, that would be the most ideal thing. Yeah. That, I well, that's what I was meaning, like in terms of evangelism, not only for your own people, but right when you're just talking to neighbors, uh, I mean, sometimes you have, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, pagan neighbors who will look around and think what's going on in the world and right. and express um, anxiety over what the future is. Exactly. And we have the answers to that. Are we at least yeah. giving them the answer? Right. It is hard to do it in a way, you know, of course it is hard. It, it, it's going to take time. I think that's mm-hmm. the other thing people need to be told. You know, evangelism, in my experience, is never St. Paul on the road to Damascus. And I I think that's exactly the problem, is that Mm -hmm. that's what we are often expecting. In fact, I think our bureaucrats, the Missouri Senate bureaucrats, expect that. Yeah, They think you're going to tell somebody about Jesus, you know, in a whatever, in a one or a two-hour conversation. You're going to have this deep spiritual conversation. You're going to preach law and gospel. The Holy Spirit's going to work through that. That person's going to believe, and then you know, go on to the next one. Mm-hmm. In my experience, it, I've never had that. It's never happened to me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been a really slow process. Mm-hmm. That when you go back and, and you look at it, and then you ask the guy, "Hey, when what? When did you actually start believing?" He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. I've asked people this a lot of quite a few people. Hey, you know um, what happened? And he's like, "I I don't know." Uh, I don't know exactly when it happened. So, so what happened was, you know, I became your friend and we started talking about these things. And, you know, I asked you some questions and you gave some answers and you invited me to come to, you know, the Bible study. And I came and, you know, I was kind of skeptical at first, but, you know, some of what you said made sense. And at some point I just started believing it. Yeah. And I don't know when it was. And it, and it happens. It's slow. It might, you know, it takes sometimes years. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I've never seen a fast one. I mean, it doesn't always take years. Sometimes it's only months. Mm-hmm. But I've never shorter. I mean, it's just. So, I think we have to be willing to make some investment in these people, and mm-hmm. you know, spend yeah. the time with them and spend the talking. So yeah, I think you mean like invite them to your house for a feast. Yeah, invite them to your house for dinner more than once. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you don't invite them to your house once, you know, have a Bible study and then start having them invite people to their houses for Bible studies, right? Yeah. Which is, again, like our our evangelism models are, I think, so often based on a misunderstanding. I mean, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it's based on Paul, Paul on the road to Damascus, where it's this instantaneous non-believer believer, Right, mm-hmm. and then also Pentecost, where this great miraculous you know event that has this mass conversion, and then um, you know 
Paul's explanation of baptism as being a life-death thing that, again, is kind of instantaneous. But my experience is it's much more like falling in love. Mm. And, you know, so if you say, you know, when when did you fall in love with your wife? It's not like, oh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, that time that, you know, she bent over to pick up a daisy and I saw her and that was it. Before I didn't, now I do. You know, I, it's not instantaneous, right? Mm-hmm. Or even like, uh, you know, when did when did you know that this person was your best friend? Right? Yeah. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. We were we were you know we were friends for a while, and then we started to be more friends, and then you know all of a sudden I look back and I go, hey, that guy's my best friend. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's I think the way fa- conversion. It, not, I mean, I'm not denying that that's how it happened in Acts. I mean, that's how it happened to Paul, and that's how it happened on Pentecost. I just don't think that's the normal way it happens. Um, you know, that we know, of course, historically, that the growth of the church has been through families and through children, not through evangelism. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that that's not that it that evangelism isn't always a part of the mix, but that's never been the the fountain of growth in the church. Um, you know, it's an act of compassion and mercy that we engage in compassion because we actually care for the lost. Mm-hmm. But like this idea that we're going to make the church big, we're going to save the Missouri Synod and save our district and have enough money for everything by being better at evangelism is, I think, really foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I don't, who, of course, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do in a way, but, you know, the best the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior and the Holy Spirit's past behavior has not been to (laughs) convert, you know, thousands of people on a regular basis, you know, Mm -hmm. right. Even the great awakening and and those events, you know, really weren't sustainable and they were kind of fake. I mean, the people that were coming were already really Christians. They kind of got excited and reconverted, but it didn't really last. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so maybe we just need some of this. You're, it's a it's a great point about the about the. I like this. I I need to do this. That we need. I need to talk about evangelism, and we need to talk about it realistically and give real advice. And I think that's an important part of it. Yeah. Look for opportunities to talk about your faith. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Yeah. And then be willing to really spend the time. Yeah. Doing it. Yeah. I mean, you got you have Saint Paul in the area Apagus, and you know. Um, I, I want to say a good chunk of the people respond. Oh, that's interesting. We'd like to hear more from you. Like they, you know, they don't fall. They don't sign on the dotted line. And <laughs> right, uh, they're like, huh, you know, uh, maybe it was just an intellectual ac- exercise for them. Who knows? But if you keep doing that, and and as he's in that place, he Acts describes that you know he met with people day in and day out for a number of hours over weeks and months and and yeah. it's not a one and done thing. Yeah, I mean one of the, you know, I mean I hate to resort to rhetorical theory, but you know, ethos is the most important aspect of compelling co- convincing someone of something. Yeah. If you if you don't have ethos, it's over. Mm-hmm. We we would like to think that uh right, just logic alone, right, or the facts should be enough to convince people but they never, never are. Yeah. There's some and, t- statistic that's like, it's a rule. Uh, I just read this. It's like 7, um, 15, 48. 
so the seven is, and this is about convincing people. The seven percent, only seven percent of convincing someone happens just because of the words. Fifteen percent happens uh, uh, because they can hear your tone, and like forty-eight percent happens because they've seen, they can see your gestures, they can see your face, and how you're saying it. And so we tend to uh, downplay both the our gestures and our facial expressions. We tend to downplay the tone that we use, and we just like just look at the words. That's not what I said. And right. And th- the vast majority of convincing happens in the tone and the actual body language that you portray, and only a very small part. Uh, part of it is your words that are chosen. And I I think that's a biblical reality that, that right character matters that the ethos, right there. Because with the the tone and the gestures they're they're judging you as a person, Mm -hmm. right? That, I mean, that's really about them trying to pay attention to your ethos. Are you a good person? Are you a trustworthy person? Are you reliable? Uh, are you, what are you, you know, how are you profiting from this? Why are you trying to convince them of this? And, you know, all of those questions matter deeply. And I think, yeah, so that's, you know, that's the kind of relationship thing that you build that mm-hmm. over time. And it's, so it's called the seven thirty-eight fifty-five percent rule. So 7% okay. is the word you use. 38 is the tone of your voice and 55% is your body language. Well, there you go. I mean, I don't like that, but uh, I do think there's a, I I don't. Well, that's just how we're wired. It's just how we're wired because we actually, character matters. And we, we know that words can be used against us and to manipulate us and so forth. So we have to write all of, and, and facts this whole word, even the word fact is just a stupid word. It just doesn't, there, there's no such thing as a fact that is just somehow solid and, you know, right. And that just exists. It, everything is contextual. And so, you know, there's this sort of, it, it's all this kind of false enlightenment scientific idea that has, right. Just, this is what actually, I think this is exactly what has destroyed rhetoric because we have this idea that this kind of science idea that it's only the facts that matter mm-hmm. and therefore we haven't paid attention to this other stuff. Yeah. But well anyway, I think I'm going to do the evangelism thing and I like cuz I think I need to do it. I think it's important mm-hmm. and I don't think I probably do it as often as I should. Mm-hmm. And I but I really like your idea of being very kind of pragmatic and practical and giving real spiritual counsel and advice on it. Yeah. to help people do it and think about it more mm-hmm. more precisely and, and deliberately. So if you're going to do this, uh, w- you'd want to begin, I assume, with how they've been evangelized and brought in, and now we are exhorted to evangelize our, ourselves to others and bring them in? Is that how, like if you're going to do the, like the order of salvation type thing, keeping things in their proper order, is that how you would organize that? Or we just say, this is an evangelism text served by people. <laughs> well, I would say, I would say, you know, we're the, we're the servants. We're, we're, we are the servants and okay. uh, we're being compelled out to, or we're being commanded to go and invite people. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure. We're the servants because we, 
we also are at this banquet mm-hmm. and you know have been saved. Yeah. But yeah, I think I would start as there, we're the servants. Yeah. So there is a you know John Fritz who has that pastoral theology. He also has a small little booklet called Practical Missionaries. And oh. what he puts forward in that book is essentially that every Missouri Synod pastor who went out, they were taught, they were they were bred to think of themselves as not just chaplains to their congregation, but also um local missionaries to their community. It was just expected that they would go and knock on doors and have visits with unbelievers. And I think that's something that has been lost among us. So so maybe um, maybe there's an exhortation to other pastors or seminarians, at least in your your context, to say, this is something we need to regain, that it's not just the people, but even the clergy are local missionaries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we uh, yes. I mean, I, I think the pastor has to be involved in this. And in fact, I mean, I, I mean, in some sense, the lay people can only kind of get it started. I mean, some, pe- some people are going to be better at it and have more skills in it than others. I don't mean, sure. but, but all of them, all of the lay people eventually are going to bring the, bring the, bring the person to the pastor, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, the pastor himself should be engaged in it, but he also, yeah, I mean, the, the, the lay people aren't, they're not expected to be catechizing, confirming these people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts? Nope. I think that's, that's good. You got me excited to preach this though. Oh, good. So thanks. Well, I've done my job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You take care. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason.